You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Safi Bacall, who is the author of this book, Loon Shots, How to Nurture the Crazy Ideas that Win Wars, Cure Diseases, and Transform Industries. Safi, innovation is something that everybody's interested in, right? Everybody's interested in organizational design. Everybody's interested in trying to figure out how do you foster innovation, and particularly within organizations, how do you prevent organizations from running out of gas, running out of new ideas, failing to adapt to changing circumstances in the environment. And a lot has been written about this, but I think you bring a very unique background, not only because you have training in physics, you've worked in the pharma, biopharma, and you know worked in McKinsey. So you have this unique background. And what I found most interesting is your use of physics as a metaphor, right? Everyone's looking for a secret formula. Everybody's looking for a magic bullet. Everybody wants to have a template that they can use in a very mechanical way. But I think the physics that you use, it goes through enough of a filter of practicality and experience that it's not meant to be a simple formula you apply, but it meant to be a framework. And in fact, yesterday I was teaching in my strategy class, which is really just I'm just throwing out frameworks for people to use. I actually threw out your framework, and I think it's one that that we can add to the library of frameworks. So tell me, where do you think your framework came from as you were starting a company, as you were building a company, and you were enmeshed in this industry, which has both these incumbents, these franchise leaders, and then all of these pesky little startups? At what point did you take that empirical observation and start to think that maybe you could apply some of your kind of formal training in the natural sciences to the understanding of how organizations work? That's a good question. And let me start by saying why I'm somewhat insulted. Uh, I'm joking tongue in cheek, but you'll see what I mean. I do think that, like you say, one of the reasons this book Loonshots resonated for people more than I expected because I kind of started on something that was really a curious observation to me and some historical research which I enjoyed and building off some work I'd done with President Obama's Council of Science Advisors and thinking more broadly about an ecosystem for innovation in a nation not just inside a company or in an industry, different levels, and a micro level inside a company and a industry level, a little more macro, but then even a broader level within a nation or even within the human species, which is the different levels I go to in the book. When you write something like this, which is sort of a popular book, I forget what writer said this. I think it might have been Nabokov. If you want to have fun and you, you want to try something different, you write on three levels. And there's no good or bad, it's just three different levels and whatever works for somebody is fine. And it's more of a challenge for the writer, both intellectually and just in crafting something. But the first level is what's often most effective in the business world, in the management world, which is telling a memorable story. Because people remember people more than they remember ideas or PowerPoint charts or matrices or frameworks or lectures. They remember people and stories about people. That's what our brain has been 
designed to do. So there's a first level of kind of telling a good story through which an idea is revealed. And so I had fun writing this book and collecting stories from my experiences at that first level, telling good stories through which some useful ideas are revealed. And that include, you know, how the Allies really won World War II, going way deep into the history and Library of Congress to find something new to say about World War II that was missed by many popular histories. In large part, I think you focus on interdisciplinary research. And that's in large part because people writing popular histories and even most academic historians are not trained scientists or trained engineers. And so it's very difficult for them to appreciate if there is a technology change, what is the impact of that change? That's usually only very specialized military historians are able to sort through that. And most of those academic articles don't translate simply or easily. So that's one example of kind of storytelling through which an idea was revealed, what really happened in World War II. And that's actually where I started with President Obama's Council of Science Advisors, because that was thinking about the future, the next 70 years for the United States. How do we recapitulate the success of the past 70 years since World War II? And what was it that happened during World War II that drove the success in our the United States' ability to outcompete globally on technology and science innovation. So that, that's the first level. How do you tell a good story through which an idea is revealed? And I think most people who read Loonshots connected at that level of, you know, whether it's World War II or the rise and fall of Pan Am or the story of Akira Endo and the discovery of the statins and the three deaths of Loonshot or... The rise of England in the West. <laughs> why the, the world picture. speaks English. How those are all yeah. connected. And it's the story of Steve Jobs or Bill Gates and Edwin Land and Polaroid and how all these stories are connected by a few themes. So that's one level. And I think a lot of people who have talked to me about the book really connect at that level. And the CEOs and executive teams that bring me in to speak with their organizations or a small group or a workshop, it's often like, hey, Safi, you know, the story you told about Pan Am versus American Airlines, Juan Trip versus Bob Crandall, could you tell that story to my team? Because they really need to understand the difference between product innovation and strategy innovation and why everybody tends to, especially in Silicon Valley, tends to focus on the former and why the latter is just as or more important. And a lot of teams have that as a blind spot. So that's kind of a first level. A second level is the level that you got to, which is you were referencing, which is, oh, there's a metaphor between a glass of water, which suddenly shifts as you lower the temperature from one type of behavior where the molecules are sloshing around to another type of behavior where the molecules are totally rigid. And you can think of that metaphor in terms of the behavior of teams and companies. When they're small, everybody's more open to wild, crazy new ideas, loon shots. And when they're larger, they go through this transition where they become much more rigid. So that Second level is a metaphor that resonates with some next level of people who appreciate that metaphor and, and quite a few CEOs and executive teams that gives them a framework that they really find helpful and that there are these two phases and it's not that one phase is good or one phase is bad, which 
is the kind of thing you read in mm -hmm. cheapo business magazines. Everybody should be innovating. Kind of garbage that's <laughs> idiotic if you're an actual CEO and have ever managed a real team and you need a lot of people to just answer the phone and not innovate, just do the same thing over and over. It's a helpful framework to keep in mind if you're a CEO that addresses real world topics or leading a group or even managing a small team. You need to have two phases in your mind. One, we just need to deliver stuff on time, on budget, on spec consistently with quality to our customers. And the other, we need to think of wild, crazy new ideas. On the one, we're reducing risk on the one we're increasing risk. And unless you understand that these are two different behaviors and two different modes, you're gonna have some problem if you're answering, if you're encouraging the guy who is responsible for making parachutes, just take some stances, try some stuff, we'll see, yeah, go up in the air, see, I don't know if it'll work or not, but you know, we want failure here because that's how we experiment. No, you don't. Not if you're making parachutes. You don't want a lot of, you know, I tried something different. I don't know. Maybe it'll work. We'll find out. No, that's not what you want your parachute guy to be doing. So it's helpful. Certainly a lot of executive teams and CEO types have found it helpful, as I did, to think about wearing two hats and being very mindful in advance. If you're talking to your finance guy who's in charge of closing books within public company reporting, closed books within, you know, 14 days of month end. Yeah, you don't want a lot of experimenting with novel ways of accounting when you're doing that. But if you're talking about a guy who's exploring new customer insights or new customer preferences or new types of products or new types of business models or ways of partnering, yeah, you want them trying a bunch of stuff and failing a bunch. Otherwise, they're not taking enough risk compared to your competitors who might be doing that, who will find the better product or strategy. So that is that second level is a useful metaphor. And a lot of folks kind of, as you say, have found that helpful as they think about managing their teams or their companies and helpful in thinking about specific actions they can take to customize. If we want one kind of behavior, we should dial in a certain kind of system and incentives. And if we want the other kind of behavior, if we want to reduce risk, we should, yeah, we should use Six Sigma and certain metrics. But if we want to increase innovation and risk-taking and experimenting, we can't use the same systems. We have to use in some ways an opposite system and opposite metrics and opposite rewards. So that's the second level. I wouldn't say it's a personal peeve, it's just a fact. There is a third level, and they're increasingly far. Toward, <laughs> worked with the publisher. I put the <laughs> a little farther towards the end of the book, which is mm -hmm. the underlying science of it. So underlying this metaphor of water versus ice, you can write an equation, and you can tease out the control parameters. So if I'm building a system that I want to encourage risk-taking, here are four parameters of how I design the organization to do that better. And so, in fact, when I did the HBR asked me for sort of an article summary version. So your business school students who want to read the abridged version can read the, I think it was called the innovation equation. They just want to just give us the four parameters, which is very typical mm -hmm. business school magazine. Just tell us the four actionable things for managers in 3,000 words or less. Preferably like 30 words would be great, <laughs> but 3,000 words is fine. But there's a third level, which is economics and mathematics. So 
at the core, which has been of interest mostly to economists and physicists, engineers, economists, much more technical-minded people, is where does that equation come from? So it's not just a metaphor, but it's, an, in fact, a first principles model of behavior in companies. So there is a fairly small subspecialty of economics called organization economics, and it studies incentives inside organizations. Most business school, firstly, there's no real world CEO or executive vice president or vice president that I've ever met that's even heard of this stuff because <laughs> it's so academic. And if you look at the papers written in this field, which was started in the 30s by Coase and Herb Simon and Care and Advanced, they're very academic. They're really not practical. If I show, as a CEO, I was a CEO for 13 or so years. If I had taken any one of these papers and showed it to my head of HR, who is a former professional football player for the NFL, defensive back for the New England Patriots. And if I had taken any one of these academic papers and shown it to him, he would have very politely kind of laughed me out of the room. But the point there in economics is to try to be first principles. Can we make a mathematical model? Now, there's been a weird puzzle or unanswered puzzle in economics that is sort of famously goes under Schumpeter's quote, creative destruction label, which is big company, you can summarize it as big companies are lousy at innovation and they eventually stagnate and die. And really all the good stuff comes from small companies that end up killing these large companies that just become old dinosaurs. So that was suggested by this Austrian economist, not proven, just like concept written down and adopted and repeated often and often, but never explained why. So you ask where I started, it's like, why? You could wave your hands. Physicists like to call explanations without any mathematics or kind of real basis in fact, hand-waving, because you gesture a lot when you're trying to explain it to people at a cocktail party. So you could wave your hands and say, big companies, you know, there's bureaucracy. So kills ideas. Okay, but why? You have somebody in charge and probably that person in charge is not sitting there with his CEO title and CEO salary reporting to his board of directors every 90 days saying, you know what I'd really like to do is stagnate. <laughs> I'd really like to quash innovation and I'd really like smaller competitors to out-innovate us and out-compete us. So one of the first places I started was just this sort of curious observation. On my board of directors was a guy who was a president of a large organization and eventually retired. I remember asking him, why did he retire? And he said, I was just frustrated with the bureaucracy. And I was thinking, wait, you were the CEO. I don't get it. If you were frustrated, why didn't you change it? What's going on here? And realizing, okay, Something's funny here because there's no one at any large organization, not just the CEO, but, you know, your executive team of eight or 10 or 12 people or whatever it is, and board of directors, they all want to win. No one is saying, ah, someone has a really promising new idea. I want to be the one to squash it. So what's going on? So that was like a first sort of odd observation. 
And what I eventually did is put together a first principle model of incentives inside organization. So you step away from all the hand-waving stuff and the BuzzFeed articles of here's the seven things you can do to innovate better, which are just sort of a waste of time, right? They're about individuals sitting in a bathtub listening to mindfulness music. No, that doesn't really help you, you know, if you're running a, an organization or a team. You want to understand the systems. There's a famous and the incentives. And that had not been done in all of org econ since... 80 years ago when the field first started at the way that I did it, a first principles theory. There had been a, you know, some progress of principal agency work that was done in the 50s and 60s about CEOs are getting paid for one thing, but the board and shareholders are hoping for something else, so there's a disconnect. Okay, that's true. <laughs> but that's focusing on one macro question, uh, CEO or stock option pay, not hey, what are the incentives at each level in the hierarchy and how do they change as the company changes? And that's what I showed. There's incentive, a simple, straightforward economic model of what are the incentives at each level. And there's two incentives, perks of rank from getting promoted and stake in outcome. And those change when you're a small company where perks of rank are irrelevant if you're 10 people, but stake in outcome is huge. When you go up to 100,000 people, your stock options are so far disconnected from your equity, is so far disconnected from your project work, right? If you have 50 billion in sales and you're working on a $10 million project, how much is the success of your project going to move your stock options? Well, not very much. There is a shift, a tipping point between those two forces as a company gets bigger and when you have a tipping point, a shift, you get something called a phase change or a phase transition in physics. And what that is, is a first principle mathematical economic model of incentives inside organizations. So that's a third level. So when I said there's three levels, there's the, this was fun as an author, just the intellectual challenge of it. You write at one level with these kind of cool, fun, exciting stories with a couple of useful takeaways. Then there's a second level of an underlying metaphor. Mm -hmm. But then at the third level for professional mathematicians or economists or physicists, there's a first principles foundational theory, which ultimately explains Schumpeter's creative destruction hypothesis from years ago. Now, where I had a lot of fun with that and since this is a longer interview and a little more academic, I can get into a little more, you, you explain the somewhat deeper or at least more historically interesting place where the book came from or the idea came from, which was none of what I just said. <laughs> but interviewers usually want the, you know, if you're on MSNBC for 30 seconds, like, they want the five second answer. Mm -hmm. But in fact, I was writing about history of science and thinking about broader patterns of history and wondering why it was that China, Islam, and India dominated the world economy and population and what you would call scientific and technology advances for a thousand years from the mid first century to the mid first millennium from about 500, 600 AD to the mid second millennium to 1500s or 1600s. Completely dominant. The advances in China, Islam, and India—you know—they were 
all leading edge in mathematics, astronomy, medicine, many different types of ten- technologies, education. And uh, England and Western Europe was essentially a backwater, uh, far behind them. P- paper and printing was invented a thousand years earlier. First education systems in China, 700 years before Europe. So that's where I started. It's a really long answer to your question, but I figure we took a little tour. I started with why does the world speak English? Why did these massive dominant empires that were far, far bigger, you know, Beijing had a million people and a fully functioning administrative system and high elite education system when London was 50,000 people and just a complete backwater. Yet, fast forward, London won and China, Islam, and India, the empires there were all killed. Why? And that, at a macro level, is what I started. Because there was no, we talked about there's no CEO that says, you know what I really want to do is stagnate my company. There was no emperor of China or Islamic caliph or Mughal emperor in India that said, you know what I'd really like to do is make our empire really crushing and suffer a horrible defeat to a country that's a thousand times smaller than us which is what happened later when England came back with these new technologies and wiped out their navies. So I started from there and I said, you know, it is odd and it kind of reminiscent that China and Islam and India were so big and so dominant and they were taken out by these tiny little countries in Western Europe. And I said, that's a lot like my industry in the biopharma. Mm -hmm. You have Merck, Pfizer and Novartis are super dominant. There are a thousand times bigger than these little biotechs, like my little biotech at a couple hundred people. Yet, the really new drugs and really important breakthroughs are coming from all the little companies. And that just, that parallel was interesting to me. And I said, it feels like there's a deeper reason here. And that led me to say, can we make a first principle economic model of why good teams will kill great ideas? Why individually, everyone will want something. If you took any of the individual emperors or any of the individual nation state rulers or any individual CEO of Merck, Pfizer, Novartis, or any big company and said, here's a cool new idea. Do you want to make that happen inside your organization? They would have said yes. And take the 10 or 20 other people on the executive team, of course. But when you put them together, the answer is no. And at the end of the day, that's what's called a collective effect that's missed in most economic models because you, I know you're interested in interdisciplinary. Mm-hmm. So there's a broader principle, which is that physicists are used to dealing with collective models where you have behaviors that are very different than individual behaviors emerge. And that's what this is. Individually, everybody in the company would have loved some new idea, some new project and wanted to see it go. When you put them together collectively, they will always kill it because the incentives are wrong. So the third level, and then I will stop talking. The third level is probably not what you were expecting when we were doing an interview. (laughs) But the third level is that. The third level is that there is a first principles theory, and that's really where the magic of interdisciplinary research comes in, we think is your theme, which is bringing some insights that come from a physicist understanding of emergent behavior from collective phenomena and applying it to a field 
where that is not normally part of the toolkit. It's just economists, now I've spent a lot of time and I'm applying the same concept, phase transitions in a first principles economic theory into other areas of business, behavior of markets, for example. Here it's the behavior of organizations. And you go back in that literature and it's just not done. And it's not done because it's, someone said, yeah, this is a bad idea. It's not done because it's not taught to graduate students and it's not part of the toolkit. Well, I mean, I have to say in some sense, I'm very envious because you managed to traverse my intellectual journey in a compressed way. So I started off in graduate school with the question, why England? Why did the industrial revolution happen in England? So I was thinking at the very high level, you know, national level. And then of course I spend most of my time now talking to corporations and saying, okay, well, how do you manage this stuff at the corporate level? And you managed to do this after you know, having an entire career right out there in, in industry. So I'm a little bit envious of that, but I think you're absolutely right. The whole idea of organizational economics is something which is under-resourced in business schools in particular. So at my business schools, at least at Berkeley, right, you know, we have organizational behavior and we have strategy and we don't actually even teach organizational design. We smuggle it in a few places here and there, but it's of the utmost importance. But I want to push on the idea that there's these different levels at which your organizational design principles apply, right? If we have the system level, right? And presumably people in charge of governments, they're working at the system level, but then we have sort of at the corporate level. So when we think about, say, phase separation and dynamic equilibrium, these things don't need to happen necessarily beneath the, the roof of a single corporation. So what you describe, for instance, in biopharma, you have your franchise companies, the Mercs of the world, and what they're really good at is productizing and distribution and marketing and clinical trials and all that sort of thing. And then you have these startups and they're the ones that are venture backed and they're the ones that are investing in all the crazy loon shots. And typically what happens is that sometimes those small companies expand and grow and become franchise companies. Sometimes they wind up getting acquired by the franchise companies, right? And then, you know, the startups can utilize that massive distribution system that the franchise companies have. But I guess the question is, well, if it works well at the system level, why should we care if it's under a single corporate roof or not. I know this is what CEOs are interested in. They're like, I wanna keep my company from becoming obsolete. I wanna have all this innovation. I wanna have this loonshot nursery in-house so that I don't go extinct. But at the system level, why do we care? If the franchise companies you know, go extinct and get replaced by these other companies, isn't that just as good as if it happens under a single corporate level? Does it matter what level of analysis we're looking at the problem? I think you have to define your question because when you say, what do we care? Who's we? Right. If I am a CEO and an executive team, I have a fiduciary duty to my shareholders to do the best job. Of course I care that my company performs. Well, but your shareholders also presumably have the ability to invest I mean, if you're a large institutional shareholder, right, I can be a limited partner with a VC and, you know, hold public equity shares. So I disagree. If I'm an investor, I give money to an executive team to manage and buying their shares. I am trusting that they 
are honoring the business and social contract that they are going to do the best possible job as a fiduciary in managing the money that I'm giving them to maximize a return for me as the person who gave them that money. So they should be doing their job to maximize the money that I gave them as a shareholder. So that's the right answer. They are a fiduciary, should be acting responsibly in the shareholder's interest. I'm setting aside all the other stuff of other stakeholders, but let's just keep it simple and say shareholder dollars, I should be acting in the interest of fiduciary interest of maximizing the returns to shareholders. And that's my job. And so if these management principles help me in my fiduciary responsibility of maximizing returns for that shareholder, then that's what I should do. Now, if you're the designer of the broader industry system, you want innovation for your nation. You want to stay competitive globally, which is you want products to continue to improve in quality and lower in cost and continue to provide great value for customers and consumers better than your other nations. To do that, you want a functioning market. And to do that, you want market participants acting consistent with the social and business contract, which is they're supposed to try to be good fiduciaries and do the best job that they can. So one company will choose to develop a certain kind of product in a certain kind of way, you know, a certain kind of phone or a certain kind of app. Another product will choose to develop it in a different kind of way. Nobody knows in advance which will win. That's the reality of market preferences and customer preferences. Same with the drug and biotech. You just don't know until you run the trials. And so they should be doing the best job that they can to continue to innovate and make that product as good as possible. And one company is betting on A and one company is betting on B. And after some time, it becomes clear that A is better than B or vice versa. That's how we get innovation broadly in the nation is if we create well-functioning markets with the caveat that I can't remember if I wrote in the book, but I think I did. And the caveat that Adam Smith actually noted as well, if you go back and read, that it's not the libertarian extreme of laissez-faire and governments should have no role. If you completely let a market go, it will become dysfunctional. There will be all sorts of market failures and instabilities that are inherent to a completely free market, particularly fraud. And you will fool a lot of people and it will be bad for the system. So there's a certain amount of governance and control that you want, like governance and like control, which is an example of what the SEC does or the FDA does with drugs. So you want there to, to be a fairness, you want there to be certain transparency, you want there to be certain efficiencies, and you want to avoid uh, monopolies because that's also a natural occurrence of a perfectly free market. But actually, as a, when a monopoly develops, it's abusive and it can stifle innovation. So there's a light governance, not too much and not too little, which is sort of a reasonable level at system level to make it work. In addition, there's something called market failures, a game theoretic problem, which the U.S. figured out in World War II, kind of part of the story that I tell with Vannevar Bush. And most other nations did not figure out and has been a big source of the United States' success over the last 70 years, although China in particular is catching up. And that is that lightly regulated markets will still fail to invest in certain areas that have very long-term potential and are very good for the nation as a whole, but are bad for any individual company to invest in. 
So they're good collectively, but bad individually. As an example, if we had asked any pharma company 40 years ago to spend a few billion dollars on genetic engineering, they would have said, you're crazy. My board will fire me because it's a complete loss. There's nothing that we know that would come out of it. And they would have been 100% justified. So there were 20 companies, all 20 would have been right to say we can't spend it. And if that had been the end of that, some other country would have invented genetic engineering or the internet or you know the chemotherapy cure for cancer or the many medical devices, all of which came from federal research. So that is an example of market failure. Many of the chips and iPhones, the transistors, none of that would have been possible without federal investment in you know, highly pure silicon and highly pure germanium or the materials that make the glasses that go on iPhones and computer LCD monitors. The starting point was federal investment in research dollars, 3D graphics, the Disney and Pixar movies. And that's why the U.S. dominates is that we understood that was what we figured out in World War II that gave us a technological edge, that there's a certain level of basic research, which is good collectively for industry and for the nation, but is the wrong answer for any individual one participant. So that gets to your question about how do you think about this at different levels? Absolutely, you want an executive applying these principles to innovate as well as they can inside their own organization. That's their job and the whole system works better if they do it. But you also want to be thoughtful at a national level if you're designing the national research infrastructure, which is the task of when I was working with President Obama's Council of Science Advisors, that's the project, the, the initiative we were focused on. And I think Biden, Biden's got bigger problems right now. Well, we could dig into this, the fundamental organizational design issue, right? And Obviously, there's so much in this book, but the key fundamental organizational design issue that I think a lot of corporate leaders are dealing with is when it comes to balancing right, their franchise business with the kind of loon shots that they want to promote, people are always asking, okay, does it make sense to have these two completely and totally separate pieces of the business org operating in parallel, or do you want to have this tightly integrated organization where individuals are simultaneously, right, whether you call it exploring and exploiting or whatever terminology you use, that seems to be what everyone's concerned with. And I think you highlight, well, look, it's a little more complicated than that, right? And you outline some rules on how this can be done. But why is it, at the end of the day, why is it that it's so difficult to be good at both, right? And you know, why do you need to, first of all, keep this separation? And then when you do have this separation, when you keep the kind of artists and the soldiers apart, why is it so important that you have this placenta, right? Or this protection for the loonshot nursery so that it doesn't get asphyxiated by the kind of legacy or franchise part of the organization? And is it rare that a CEO understands what they need to have in these separate parts of the organization and to orchestrate the communication and the feedback, right? Why is it so hard? Why is it that organizations have a tendency to kind of kill their loonshot nurseries? 
First, I should say that I have spent a lot of time over the last few years, I now just kind of do regular workshops that are more or less full-day workshops with executive teams. So there's a lot that's not in the book that mm -hmm. has come through doing extensive interviews. Every time a team comes to me with like, all right, let's start to apply some of this stuff. I interview a half dozen or dozen people across the organization at each group or level to get a handle on the organizational dynamics. And, you know, over the course of doing that for quite a few years, I have kind of boiled that down to how do you design an innovation ecosystem in practice? So there's a lot of things not in the book that have learned, and so it's probably a little hard to summarize. I usually do that in a, like a full-day workshop with exercises. Yeah, it would have to be a much longer book, I'm sure. Well, there's a, sec to. there's a second book on applying it in practice with a lot of things mm -hmm. that have become clear since I wrote that book. But there's a number of points, starting with what are the typical failure modes in innovation? And... This comes from now being inside many well-known companies at different sizes, from the very large, very well-known brand names to just pre-IPO or post-IPO companies to mid-sized companies with a few billion in sales. I think of it as sort of three failure modes when it comes to innovation. The first is focus. And I, since I don't have a good memory, I think of it in terms of three Fs so I don't forget. Focus is when a typical trap, the CEO says, we really want to innovate. We really don't want to stagnate. Let's call Safi because you wrote this book. And what often happens is that the message that the CEO or the executive team is getting, is receiving in broadcasting is everybody innovate. So people get excited at first and a couple hundred people come back and, you know, there's a new idea for a train set or a this new is, idea. This is when the CEO appoints himself or herself the chief, chief innovation, innovation officer, officer, right? Which is yeah. a mistake. And you see that yeah. thing in little BuzzFeed articles or whatever all the time. Mm -hmm. The CEO must be the CIO. As some well-known mm -hmm. CEOs have written that in their books too. So I won't mention any names. Maybe with a two-drink minimum, I might, but... What happens is that 200 people come back and you have your executive team here reading, you know, a proposal for a new t-shirt or a new credit card. And they're like, not that. That's not what we meant. And then what did you just do? Well, 197 people go back really pissed off and frustrated. And I call that idea constipation. And what you've just created is 197 innovation anti-catalysts in your organization. <laughs> who will be cynical about any future innovation. What you need to do is, as a CEO, be really clear in the beginning of, here are the 20 areas we might innovate on, 10 in product and 10 in strategy, business model. And of those 20, here's the 17 areas that we absolutely will not innovate on over the next two years. Now, as soon as you say that to a team or a department, they're like, wait, don't innovate? Yeah, don't innovate in these 17 areas. I'm like, oh, huh. Well, I guess that leaves these three areas. Yeah. And so what does that do? It liberates all of this energy on these three areas. And it's actually very motivating. Just like if I asked you to write, you know, Greg, can you give me two poems tomorrow? You'd be like, wait, what? I don't know. What's a poem? What do you mean? Or if I said, can you give me two haikus tomorrow? Well, that's a lot easier and a lot more fun. Because, you, you know, five syllables, seven syllables, five syllables, done. So the same thing. So the first, that first one is around focus. And if you don't do that, you get kind of what I call sort of spaghetti innovation, which happens all the time, which is just throw spaghetti on the wall, see what sticks. And that is one 
failure mode. The second one is lack of a framework. If you call around and talk to folks, tell me about what happens when there's a new idea. And like, I don't know, I email it to my boss. And then what happens? I don't know, she doesn't reply. And then what happens? I don't know, just goes nowhere. Which is the vast majority of companies. Where ideas go to die. Oh, there's an innovation person or something. So when there's no framework for collecting and sourcing ideas, but more importantly, not ideas, you want experiments and hypotheses and things that you can test in five weeks and $5,000. And so when I do a day workshop, I do an experiment workshop at the end. I get everybody in groups designing small experiments that can be run quickly and pitched six weeks later. And so there needs to be a process of starting on the one side, like, where will you not innovate? So now we're focused on the areas that actually we really care about. And now within there, how are we sourcing not ideas, but experiments? And within that, who's judging them? And within that, how much money do they get? And what's the timeline? And where's the stage gating? And where's the thumbs up, thumbs down? And what does the next step look like? And if you're inside an organization, what's frustrating and demotivating is if there's no process or no transparency. And then you just stop. But in fact, if there is a fair process, like a lot of things in compensation, it's the perception. If it's perceived as fair, that's one thing and it can be acceptable. If it's perceived as unfair, then you will have a big problem. So if it's perceived as unfair or chaotic or not transparent or unclear, you will be quashing innovation. So that's a second place. It typically fails and you get lost in the closet projects. I like to call them, it's like somebody said something at a staff meeting two years ago and everybody was excited for a day and then forgot about it. Where is it? Oh, it's somewhere in the back of the closet where it stays until you open the paper and read that your competitor just launched a new business and your business is dead. We have a lot of those at the universities. Yeah. It's lost in the closet, you get premature scalings. If you don't have an appropriate framework, someone gets overly excited about an idea. Let's say our customers really want batteries. It's a real example, and I won't mention any names like General Electric. Oh, great, let's go buy a $2 billion battery factory. Oops, mm -hmm. they didn't want batteries from us. Well, there's $2 billion gone. That's premature scaling. That happens all the time too. You get overly excited and overly invest because you haven't thought in advance, what's a reasonable process for stage gating? How can we spend just as much energy thinking about breaking this down into a sequential series of hypotheses that we can test? You just get overly excited and rush. So you really want to overinvest in the system internally. That doesn't mean you have a very heavy system. It means you want to just put the same creativity and energy and thought into what does that pipeline look like and what is the flow and how do you optimize that pipeline and keep experimenting with your system just like you experiment with your product. The final one and the real killer is friction. And so I see that all the time and there are three types of friction. And so each of these things I go through in a workshop and say, what are the practical steps you can do as an executive team? I usually, you do the interviews and then you find out where a particular team or company is fine, they're, they're, they've actually got these things under control and where they're stumbling, and it's different at every team and every company. And then you kind of present what you might do. This is sort of like a fancy consulting firm one-year project boiled down into one day. Instead of a million a month for $10 million, I won't mention any names like 
McKinsey or whoever. <laughs> but instead of that, you kind of boil it down to one day and you know what I charge, which is much less than $10 million. Friction is, the first one is, let's say, okay, we got the idea, Safi. It's all about running experiments at pace and scale. And that's what really distinguishes the great innovators is their ability to run experiments at pace and scale without dropping the ball on their core franchise. That really is. If I look at the companies that I spent time with that are truly outstanding in their industries, the apex innovator types, it's their ability to run experiments at pace and scale. And by pace, I, mean, I don't mean like, oh, we try a business plan in two years. No, I mean every week something new. Well, the scale issue, I think, is at the heart of your work, right? And you have, I think, something like Boyle's Law, but we'll call it Bacall's Law, Right, which is how do you expand the size of your organization while at the same time allowing it to continue to foster these loon shots? So, in other words, to kind of overcome the Schumpeterian limitation on size. And that's really at the heart of your work. And that's where that formula comes in, right? It's about how do you increase your organizational scale and keep kind of politics at bay. And one of the proposals, I mean, there's a bunch in there that I found particularly compelling is this idea of a chief incentive officer, right? That is continually keeping an eye on the perverse incentives that will tip people from innovating into kind of, you know, rank chasing and engaging in political behavior. So one of the things that you talk about is how do you reduce the return on politics? But one thing that I found just a bit under argued is, you know, politics never sounds good, right? It's just the whole way in which you talk about politics, it sounds terrible, but it seems as if politics is necessary within these franchise organizations. So what's the upside of politics? It seems like that's, you know, once you become a franchise organization, the, the politics becomes critical. And just to go back to where you started, when you look at the kind of Vannevar Bush framework, right, that's meant to kind of overcome, or should I just say supplement the way in which decision making is made within these large hierarchical organizations. So what is it that the franchise organizations like the military, what do they get right in terms of the rinse, wash, repeat part of the business? Why does politics actually make sense within that framework? I think we're getting to what the word politics mean when you use it. What I'm talking about is how you design your incentives. You get what you pay for. You get the kind of behavior you design into the system. And I remember there was a, a quote by Warren Buffett at one point, which gets to this fact about what has been missed in most business school teachings, as many business school professors here at HBS and so forth have mentioned to me, is that in almost all of the management books, all of the business books, you just don't see incentives mentioned. Some part of that is if you are a professional academic, you understand incentives to tenure, and then it's a little harder to wrap your mind around the day-to-day -day incentives of the mid-level employee. But when the CEO leaves the room, that mid-level employee is going to do what's in their own incentives. And it's not the CEO that's building the new coffee machine or the new widget or coding the new stuff. It's the mid-level employee. And when the CEO or her boss or the SVP or the VP leaves the room, she is going to do correctly what's in her own incentives. So if you don't pay attention to those incentives, you're missing a big thing. And that's ultimately what underlies loom shots, which is you want the right incentives for the right kind of behavior. 
if your job is to make parachutes, you don't want to incentivize a lot of risk-taking and failure. If your job is to make new kinds of weapons and missiles that your adversary might be designing against you or your competitor, you do want a lot of risk-taking. So you want to be really a lot more thoughtful about incentives than is typical. And what Warren Buffett said at some point, who does understand behavior inside organizations very well, said, I used to say that incentives explained, I think it was 90% of behavior. I was mistaken. It explains 99% of behavior. And so that's what's left out and that's what Loonshots includes. And that's why you want to overinvest. And I think what I mentioned there is like, look, you have a chief revenue officer whose role is strategic. Given a marketing budget, how many dollars can we make? You have a chief technology officer whose role is strategic. Given a fixed technology budget, how do we ensure the optimum technology use across the organization? Why don't you have a chief incentives officer? You have a fixed compensation. You try to stick within a fixed budget of cash and options. Why aren't you trying to have someone who's focused on maximizing the return that you get from that. It's pretty obvious. Which would you rather have, you know, a, a force that has the latest smartphone gadgets or a force that's, that's the most motivated in the industry? I'd rather have the latter. I think that's a fantastic idea. I think it would transform HR departments, give economists a lot more jobs. There's a lot of stuff in this book right here. We barely scratched the surface. I highly recommend it. Lots on culture versus organizational design. Well, there's just so much in there, lots of different rules. And you only mentioned three levels, but I think there's actually many more levels. Loon shots, how to nurture crazy ideas that win wars, cure diseases, transform industries. Safi, thanks so much for joining me. Great. Oh, and if folks want to reach me, I can send them some of the articles and so forth. It's my first name at my last name, Safi at Bacall.com. All right. We'll post some links for you. Okay. All right. See thanks you. a lot. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.